can you start us off one more time with with the noise? <laughs> There's Moth Dula. Glitter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. Joining me is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. Hello. And, uh, of course, Morticia, the podcasting kitty. Wow. <laughs> they're going to think that's her. No, they're not. They're they, pr- I'm pretty they, sure. They they know. She's, she's sitting right next to me with her cup of joe. <laughs> <laughs> so, last week, we left off with the young Smith family in dire financial straits due to some risky decisions. Uh, but before we get too deep into the magical career that followed and their visionary inclinations, we should perhaps first better contextualize the environment of Antebellum America, specifically that of New York's famous burned-over district where they lived. Mm. So due to the diversity of Christian thinking at the time, the line between so-called white and black magic, otherwise benevolent and malevolent magic, was often arbitrary and poorly defined. While some Christians abhorred the idea of magic of any kind, finding the practice utterly antithetical to certain concepts of Christian righteousness, there were others who appreciated that the Abrahamic faiths are simply another, potentially more powerful form of magic. Although it may seem absurd to some, scrying, money-digging, faith-healing, spirit conjuration, and even outright necromancy were all practiced by genuinely pious and observant Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. To many Christians in the New World, it was not a black-and-white choice between reigning in hell or serving in heaven, but rather that, through serving heaven, one inevitably gains reign or dominion over hell. Serving heaven as in doing magic? Uh, Yeah, so like... In by calling on the names of uh, demons, you're essentially acting as a agent of God to get them to do certain things. Mm. So, in that vein, uh, a commonly circulated apocryphal account of King Solomon sees the prophet implementing a magical ring and seal in order to conjure and compel demons to build the temple of the Lord in a miraculously short period of time. This is the same, uh, the Wailing Wall mm-hmm. uh, in Israel. Yeah. This is the last wall standing of the king uh, of the Temple of Solomon that was built supposedly by demons. And after the construction process, Solomon was alleged to have bound the same demons into an iron container, finally banishing them or destroying them by fire or sinking them in the sea. He controlled them with this one ring to rule, <laughs> to them, rule all? them all. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then he he they shall not pass. Okay. The so they went to Mordor. I did the same thing the with my ring when after I got divorced. Yeah. It's just a thing, I guess. Banish it by do. fire. I did. I I Schmeagle. <laughs> Yeah, Bit your finger him, off? Push, no. okay. <laughs> Pushed him down. <laughs> um, I wish. So, uh, as the uh, the magical ring and the accompanying symbols allowed for such an operation, they were bestowed to King Solomon by uh, an angel of God. I think like Gabriel, uh, if memory serves. Uh, one can clearly see with this connection, just, you know, a slight change of perception and even God's most favored prophets could also be considered sorcerers of the highest caliber. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, while certain Christian followers could understand the position of magic within their doctrine and dogma, 
Many of them simply could not. And so sadly, because the magically inclined Christians were often in the minority, uh, social pressures frequently saw to the rise of some rather draconian periods of Christian history, uh, such as the Inquisition or the Crusades. Mm. Uh, with the witch trials of Europe and even the Masonic-centric uh, satanic panic of the late 19th century, uh, these periods assured that while magic was often a sort of open secret being practiced by doctors, physicians, popes, and peasants alike, uh, that it never fully emerged in the public a- uh, academic spheres under a respectable or more legitimate light. Uh, there was actually a time during the Renaissance where like, magic and mathematics – were kind of looked at as the same thing. Uh, yeah. And yeah. because of uh, Descartes and a number of other rational thinkers, mathematics kind of took Diverted off. Uh, the main stage. Yeah, I feel like all of it. Magic, medicine, mathematics. Mm-hmm. Astrology. Yeah, it was actually not until quite recently that astrology even kind of took a a backseat. It is both telling and a historical curiosity that many of the same neighbors who later swore testimonies describing the Smith family and their occult predilections mm-hmm. uh, conveniently omitted their own documented involvement in such practices. An interesting and perhaps tangential uh, anecdote highlighting this problem uh, comes from none other than the Salem Witch Trials, wherein two men, Samuel Smith and his father-in-law, John Gould, were involved in the accusation and subsequent hanging of two women during the trials. And while both men carried a reputation for magic and alchemical interests, the court records are absent of any mention of this. And (laughs) the fact that these men were accusing their neighbors of malfeasant witchcraft, while at the same time failing to mention their own occult practices, or furthermore being accused of the same charges in retaliation, illustrates the careful balance one could strike while addressing such issues in early America. Well, they weren't just neighbors. They were women. I'm sure the the, uh, gender uh, had a lot to do with that, too. And uh, these were old men accusing young women of these things. So who knows what the real story was? Um, Samuel Smith. Samuel Smith, yeah, you caught on to that, was not only the grandfather of Joseph Smith Sr., but you know, because of this incident in Salem and their reputation there, that means that his family's reputation for mysticism and occult practices survived at least three generations and definitely eventually influenced the birth of the Mormon faith. Mm. So, um, one of these, (laughs) we're going to get into this guy a lot. We may, he may even get his own episode. Samuel Smith. No, uh, I'm who I'm about to talk about. uh, Abner Cole, He was a neighbor of the Smiths in Palmyra, Manchester area of New York. And um, he was one of the first outspoken critics of the Mormons, uh, literally before they even published the Book of Mormon. This guy was a, a journalist and a newspaper guy. Oh, okay. He was writing articles about Joseph Smith and the Money Diggers uh, years before any of this happened. So he's a truth seeker. Yeah, but again, he kind of was involved in this, and perhaps his reason for hating Joseph and a bunch of the money diggers was because it seems like he may have gotten screwed out of some money that they had promised him. And so years later, when they're publishing the Book of Mormon, Abner Cole gets a copy of the first like half of the Book of Mormon Mm. and prints his own satirical version called the Book of (laughs) Pukei. 
pukey eye? The pukey eye. Is he in fifth grade? Uh, it's well, it's very lowbrow. A lot of fart jokes and oh, uh, dumb jokes. But excellent. he he writes in the same stylings as Joseph Smith and kind of uh, <laughs> makes fun of Joseph as though he's the main character of his own book. Was the author duty head? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he 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 uh, wrote all of this under the pseudonym uh, Obadiah Dogberry. Okay, which. Again, he, yeah, he's yeah. a fifth grader. All right, he's a fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't let me in your club now, then, right? So when he, when he wrote his Obadiah Dogberry, he was doing so satirically. And when he wrote as Abner Cole himself, he, that's what he was publishing in the Palmyra newspaper that he published. And this comes from the Palmyra uh, newspaper that he was publishing under. And it, I think it just really beautifully highlights what we're talking about with like the relationship between normal people, money and magic and everything that was going on at this time. It's a bit of a long quote. So bear okay. with me. All right. Quote, we are not able to determine whether the elder Smith was ever concerned in money digging transactions previous to his immigration from Vermont or not. But it is a well authenticated fact that soon after his arrival here, he evinced a firm belief in the existence of hidden treasures and that this section of the country abounded in them. He also revived, or in other words, propagated the vulgar yet popular belief that these treasures were held in charge by some evil spirit, which supposed to be either the devil himself or some of his most trusty favorites. This opinion, however, did not originate by any means with Smith, for we shall find the vulgar and ignorant from time immemorial, both in Europe and America, have entertained the same preposterous opinion. I love the writing in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Cole. It may not be amiss in this place to mention that the mania of money digging soon began rapidly to diffuse itself through many parts of this country. Men and women without distinction of age or sex became marvelous wise in the occult sciences. Many dreamed and others saw visions disclosed to them. Deep in the bowels of the earth, rich and shining treasures and to facilitate those mighty mining operations. Money was usually, if not always sought after in the, in the nighttime. Diverse devices and implements were invented, and although the spirit was always able to retain his precious charge, meaning they never made any money, <laughs> <laughs> these discomfited and well-deluded beings would on a succeeding night return to their toil, not in the least doubting that success would eventually attend their labors. So these idiots, despite their constant failure, keep going back and digging holes in the ground. Uh, why, why are they so convinced there's buried treasure everywhere? Uh, we'll get to that in, uh, I think in the next few episodes, we'll do okay. a diversion on like magic and drugs okay. and we'll definitely like, dig into the money digging craze. At least the Goonies had an attic full of like maps and stuff. Like <laughs> I don't, I do not understand where these guys are. Well, like a lot of it comes from the grimoires they're pulling this from. A lot of the grimoires put forth the idea that like there are hidden treasures in the earth or like gold veins can be through magical means brought to the surface. Oh, and okay. From hell, hence the uh, devil's gold. Mm, it's like the they have a weird concept of geology at the time <clears throat> okay. and yeah. it's very okay. magically inspired and not based in fact all the time what um <laughs> back to coal okay. mineral rods and balls as they are called by the imposter who made them were supposed to be ineffable guides to these sources of wealth peep stones or pebbles taken promiscuously from the brook or field were placed in a hat or other situation excluded from the light when the wizard or witch for these preferences are not confined to either sex applied their eyes and nearly starting their balls from their sockets 
declared that they saw all wonders of nature, including, of course, ample stores of silver and gold. It is more than probable that some of these deluded people, by having their imaginations heated to the highest pitch of excitement, and by straining their eyes until they were suffused with tears, might have, through the medium of some trifling emission of ray of light, receive imperfect images on the retina, when their fancies could create the rest. Be this, however, as it may, people bruised themselves in consulting these blind oracles, while the ground was nightly opened in various places, and men who were too lazy or idle to labor for bread in the daytime displayed a zeal and perseverance in this business worthy of a better cause. So even even contemporaries to the Smiths uh, were skeptical. shall we say? And uh, whether or not Abner Cole was actually involved with the money diggers and lost any money, he eventually did uh, see them, f- see their true colors. And, you know, he doesn't really mention the possibility that, you know, maybe these people were just on a lot of drugs in the nighttime <laughs> and uh, digging holes in the ground and talking to spirits because. And I get, uh, how, how did they, was he saying they're looking in hats? Yes, which we will get back to. So everyone is running around looking this in This is a hats. legitimate method, yeah. Putting a okay. stone in a hat, okay. uh, stuffing your face in it to exclude out the light, mm-hmm. and then apparently visions and uh, messages can be received through the stone. Okay. So M- Mormon historian D. Michael Quinn uh, devoted a considerable length of his book, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview, just to establishing how prevalent these alchemical, hermetic, and occult publications were in 19th century America. A score of titles ranging from Christian occultism to outright diabolism were openly circulated among local booksellers, traveling peddlers, and cooperative libraries alike. Many of these publications make mention of secret vaults containing ancient and esoteric knowledge written on tablets of precious metal or stone, which were almost always discovered by some uncontaminated or pure young man of spiritual or philosophical inclination. More often than not, such vaults were guarded by a spirit or mummy guardian, uh, which then could provide further knowledge and instruction. For example, uh, Sir Isaac Newton's publication of the translated Smagdarine or Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Egyptian, was one of the more popular and commonly circulated pieces. And this is one of those things that was allegedly discovered in someone's grave uh, by a young kid, and it was like being held by a mummy in a throne. So, I'm sorry, the kid is... Why is he with a mummy? <laughs> it's one of those like Indiana Jones moments where he like falls into a cavern and ah. he's like in this underground vault and oh my god, there's I'm in the middle of this temple. There's a mummy <laughs> in a chair and he's holding an emerald tablet and all these secret papyri written in some kind some of Egyptian nonsense. Oh, all right, uh, all of this you know we'll get back to because joseph smith's uh proposed discovery of golden plates yes uh, which were written in he what he called reformed egyptian and preserved in a magical underground vault <laughs> this mm-hmm. all fit perfectly into the average 19th century americans idea of how such archaic information of a religious importance was often uncovered wait so did this really happen like, did kids no, really find them? There's models? no evidence that this ever really happened. Okay. Um, I mean, we just have these stories from, like, this guy. I knew this guy who said that this happened, and okay. that's how he got these tablets. Okay. And, okay. And like much I- like Smith, no one ever saw the tablets. <laughs> they just <laughs> saw okay. the writing afterward. Um, probably just got a mummy from some place 
Well, uh, later in the story, the Joseph East. Smith actually does get his hands on some mummies. Yeah, no, and, I'm assuming uh, they get their hands on mummies, and they're just like, see? Oh, he does. And he uh, creates a whole book of Abraham, as nice. we'll see. Uh, and if you look in the back of the Book of Mormons published today, mm-hmm. uh, there's still pieces of this very plagiarized and altered <laughs> version of what are on uh, um, Egyptian death papyri. Ah. Um, they're like prayers from the Book of the Dead. But it's not specific to any one person. Like, everyone who was mummified was buried with these things. It was, like, part of the funeral rite. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. But, yes, he does get his hands on some mummies eventually. But we will get there. Um, Much like the frequent references to these hidden vaults and places of knowledge were related recipes in occult literature for inducing visionary or hypnotic states of consciousness as an enhancement for spirit conjuration or divination or, you know, whatever. From one of the most widely circulated publications on the topic, Agrippa's De Occulta Philosophia contained the following excerpt. Quote, there are also suffumigations under opportune influences of the stars that make the images of spirits forthwith appear in the air or elsewhere. So, they say, that if of coriander, smallage, henbane, and hemlock be made to fume, that spirits will presently come together. Hence, they are called spirits' herbs. Also, it is said that fume be made of the root of reedy herb sa- sagapin, with the juice of hemlock and hembane, for sure, and the herb uh, tapsus barbatus, red sanders, and black poppy, make spirits and strange shapes appear, unquote. Uh, I don't know about all of those, but definitely hemlock, henbane, uh, red sanders, I think, black poppy for sure, uh, will definitely get you off your rocker, and if you're in the right <laughs> state of magic operation uh you could probably see some cool stuff yeah i'm so curious what these herbs are i'm trying to look them up but like reedy sagapin a lot of these are really old names for things we would know yeah but i mean normally a good chunk of people figure out i can't find anything interesting (sighs) but uh until quite recently mormon historians both believers and polemics alike have studied the grimoires i'm talking about that are connected to the Smith family at arm's length. They're treating such connections as antithetical or contradictive to what they consider traditional Christian piety. This position not only betrays a certain level of ignorance on the topic, but as should be apparent by now, couldn't be further from the truth. One simply can no longer ignore the fact that Joseph Smith was born into a magical and religious worldview and that definitely at times included the incorporation of psychoactive plants and fungi. The plethora of well-documented occult practices, as well as the availability of practical entheogenic source material and information, is simply too widespread to ignore any longer. And for Mormon historians such as Richard Bushman, who wrote the biography I quote at, I quote from constantly to attempt to divorce the occult background of Joseph Smith Jr. And that of his religious or spiritual practice, like he does is a disservice to both our modern perception of the young prophet and to history as a field in general. So uh, in short, uh, from last week's episode and what we just covered, we can see the Smith family patriarch and matriarch were well-versed students and practitioners of Christian occultism and magical praxis. As we'll see in future episodes, the entire family was raised in an environment where the practices were an everyday part of Christianity, esoteric or otherwise. And while some authors will definitely create a false dichotomy by attempting to color the family as outright con artists or a new prophetic, you know, 
the new family of Moses. The truth is much more interesting and lies somewhere in between. They did at times take advantage of friends, neighbors, and later their parishioners for financial gain. This is very true. <laughs> but based on the documented evidence of all sides considered, I believe that the family also had a deeply seated conviction of their own righteous piety. Uh, the term pious fraud is one that was coined in the 18th century to highlight such individuals that have genuinely drunk their own Kool-Aid, so to speak. Mm. Uh, so even in like the 17th century, they recognized people and families like this who believed they were doing some good or, you know, and whatever means necessary, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Still happens. Still happens. All the time. All the time. Yeah. So, uh, back to the Smith family specifically, uh, when we ended last week's episode, the, with that financial disaster that left Lucy Mack and Joe senior destitute and scrambling to provide for their ever growing family. He was getting drunk all day. She was preggers with two babies. Yeah. Oh yeah. We ended with the drunk. Well, yeah, this period for the Smith family continued to prove really eventful. Uh, and as, Joseph Smith Sr., the prophet's father, was, like I said, commonly cited around their New York and Vermont homes, visibly intoxicated in the 19th century when visible intoxication was a <laughs> totally different uh, ballpark than it is today. Um, I, I just got to read this quote again. Good it, old days. I think I did it last week, but uh, <laughs> one neighbor, uh, I think it was Barton. Uh, anyway, he once said, quote, the old man, referring to Joseph Smith Sr., uh, would always tell yarns. He would always like bullshit. Oh yeah. <laughs> he would go to a turkey shoot, get tight, meaning drunk, and then put <laughs> spells lingo. on people's guns. I know. I love their, their language. Yarns, get, get tight. tight. Uh, <laughs> and he would then put spells on people's guns and tell them that they wouldn't be able to shoot, which obviously that's ballsy. They could figure that out. Yeah. This shoot continues. me, bro. Shoot me. <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> And that's how he was shot. Yeah, <laughs> really? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I was going to say. Don't. Um, oh, it was Barton Stafford uh, was the guy. He was another neighbor of the Smith family. He said, quote, Joseph Smith Sr. was a drunkard and most of the family followed his example. You mean they all just were drunk? <laughs> oh, it sounds like a lot of the family a lot of the times was uh, – Visibly intoxicated in public, uh, which at this time means the kids too. <laughs> so, uh, again, it's um, this is another neighbor that kind of forgot to mention that. Oh yeah, I was one of his money digging friends, so I saw him a lot, and uh, we did the same things. He was just way more of a dick about it. Um, I, that's my own editorializing. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but when we, when taken into proper context, we can see, especially in the case of Smith Sr., that there may have been uh, substantial evidence for plant-based intoxication. This quote comes from Francis Barrett's The Magus, which as we will see maybe today or next week, but they definitely had access to this specific book. Uh, quote, he, the adept, meditates day and night how he may attain the true aquavita how he may be filled with the grace of God, which, when he is made so happy, his spiritual and internal eye is open to a glorious prospect of mortal and immortal riches. He wants not food, raiment, joy, or any other thing. He is filled with the celestial manna. Hmm. Again, the making such 
descriptive remarks about your feelings in direct correlation to drinking something or eating something, the celestial mana or the aquavita. That says to me that they're talking about something real specific that happens after you eat or drink something. Yeah. Um, I don't get that way when I have a... Cup of coffee or yeah. water. I feel better after a cup of cup coffee. Cup of coffee. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. But, but it is not the true aquavita that mm. makes me want not for food remnant joy or any other thing. <laughs> no. Those those are drugs. Yeah, those those definitely are. <laughs> and uh, and this book was largely a plagiarism of uh, Agrippa's books, the uh, Occult of Philosophia that I read from, and so. A lot of the same information is in the same books. And again, these were the most commonly circulated grimoires of the time. Okay. In any event, Joseph Smith Sr. upheld a well-documented lifelong fascination with Abrahamic esotericism, uh, cult magical practices, and mind-altering substances. The prophet's mother, Lucy Mack, once defended her family's occult interests and activities in her manuscript history with, quote, let not my reader suppose that because I shall pursue another topic for a season that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of a brack, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business. We never during our lives suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation but whilst we worked with our hands, we suffered to remember the service of and the welfare of our souls, unquote. She's basically saying that, like, what? at no point did we let anything stop our farm work or our devotion to God. Uh, and she does. We're functioning refer- druggies. <laughs> well, we're functioning magicians, ah. which includes being uh, using drugs. <laughs> but <laughs> specifically, like, she says – uh, we never suffered one important interest referring to winning the faculty of a brack, which is abracadabra, the, the magic words, yeah. drawing magic circles or soothsaying. So she's illustrating the importance of these things mm-hmm. while kind of backhandedly moving them to the side so you don't focus on them. So as historian Dan, Dan Vogel has highlighted – uh, she also conveniently fails to mention that the family at times depended on the financial income from their scrying and money digging operations, uh, simply in order to survive monetarily at times. While the magic and the occult didn't get in the way of farm work or religious observance, it was certainly a major factor in their day-to-day life. And coupled with the cake and beer shop briefly operated by the Smiths during this time, one can clearly see a steady connection between the family's occult practices and intoxicating substances. How long did they have the cake and beer shop? I thought, so that was after they had, it was kind of, that's different than their little market that they, yes. Okay. And from my understanding, it was kind of like when you drive by farms and they have those little stands with like flowers or eggs and it's just like, take some or like come get us. And Uh it seemed like to be one of those. It was like a, a, okay, a roadside cake and beer shop. Got so it. as you were traveling by the road, you could stop and get some refreshments. Okay. So Lucy, Lucy and Joseph Sr. continued to move around the Vermont and New York areas during the 1800s. And they rented farm space from family for seasonal work in the summer. And like I said, last episode, they taught school in the winter. Lucy mentions in her manuscript history that, quote, In this way, my husband continued laboring for a few years, during which time our circumstances gradually improved until we found ourselves quite comfortable. This period did not stem the familial interest in the occult, and while Lucy Mack again omitted or redirected focus from such interests, her writings are not entirely without curiously traditional or perhaps archetypal visions and dreams of the occult, 
which are, I think, of psychedelic importance. Um, it's during this time of migrant farm work with Joseph Sr.'s well-documented fondness for intoxicating substances mm-hmm. that Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack had a series of significant visions, which I want to go into a little bit. Great. Uh, the tradition of recording mystical experiences that are folded in triple meanings is a long-standing one, uh, like several thousand years long-standing, and one that actually appears in the manuscript history of Lucy Mack. As stated by her contemporary, Eliphas Levi, who published the famous treaty, the, the Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic, just a year after Lucy Mack recorded her biographical sketches that I'm reading from, Eliphas Levi said, quote, like all magical mysteries, the secret of the great work have triple signification. Hmm. Uh, they are religious, philosophical, and natural, unquote. So this came from a guy publishing in France just a year after she published her books that I'm reading from. This is a, about as contemporary as you get. Okay. And it's basically there's triple meaning hidden in these. In, in occult writings. Right. Or just writings from the occult. So it's like and it could if just you're reading be... this guy's journal, his journal okay. may be his journal, but it right. also has at times triple meanings for the initiated to pick up on. Okay. So uh, this specific vision uh, occurred while living in Tunbridge, Vermont, and contemplating on the probably family turmoil and her desire that Joseph Sr. might become a more traditionally religious man, Lucy Mack recorded this following vision. And this is an example of triple meaning. Yeah, and we'll, we'll break it down okay. a little bit afterwards. Right. Quote, I discovered two trees standing upon its margin, both of which were on the same side of the stream. These trees were very beautiful. They were well-proportioned and towered with majestic beauty to a great height. Their branches, which added to their symmetry and glory, commenced near the top and spread themselves in luxurious grandeur around. I gazed upon them with wonder and admiration, and after beholding them for a short time, I saw one of them was surrounded with a bright belt that shone like burnished gold, but far more brilliantly. Presently, a gentle breeze passed by, and the tree encircled with this golden zone bent gracefully before the wind and waved its branches in the light air. As the wind increased, this tree assumed the most lively and animated appearance and seemed to express in its emotions the utmost joy and happiness. So Lucy Mack later explains that the vision's philosophical and religious meaning regarding is regarding her husband Joseph and his older brother Jesse's different temperaments and worldviews on faith. Mm. Um, in the same dream, she talks about one tree that's kind of unyielding to the wind and it's broken over and it You're doesn't okay. have this belt, of, ber- uh, belt uh. of gold around it. And she thinks that this... Uh, Anyway, the the undiscussed natural significance of this dream is what I think is a accurate description of mushroom behavior, uh, commonly known as fairy rings. Mm-hmm. Mycelium have a curious tendency to sprout fruiting bodies in uh, almost perfect circles, which often ring or crown a host tree. And the bright belt that's shown like burnished gold is a widely circulated motif in alchemical and magical literature and has been satisfactorily linked by several authors to be a mycologically based uh, entheogenic reference. I think we talked about this with the fly, Garrick. Mm-hmm. Um, or are you, are you more open to other varieties of mushrooms, I guess? There, so um, Beckstead's paper, The Restoration of the Sacred Mushroom, puts forward that it is uh, f- the fly agaric 
a number of other authors have said this. I think that that's a possibility. Okay. Um, I think there's often way too much emphasis put on uh, Fly Agaric, especially okay. in North America. Okay. Uh, there are dozens of psychedelic species of mushroom that are golden well that turn golden when they when they dry Dry. out um and they often like dish themselves out to be little plates of gold yeah and when they ring themselves it would look like a a belt of gold and so that's why i think you have this common motif fly garricks do when they dry out become kind of a tannish golden color but so do i've seen liberty caps do that there's uh I don't have my notes with me, but there's at least like half a dozen species that do this and are endemic to that area. Um, and probably are mo- more likely to mm-hmm. be little circles. Or I guess yeah. fly agarics do that. They do that too, but um, they usually do it around birch trees. Um, ah, and these were willows? The, well, it was a whole forest. So around this time... Anyway, we'll get that to, to that later. Okay. Uh, fairy rings... Uh, as such, were commonly used to communicate with spirits to perform magical ceremonies. Uh, not only did Lucy Mack come from a family of Scottish immigrants, where this folklore is particularly pronounced, but several books on Scottish and Irish folklore uh, were available at the libraries and printing offices near Palmyra and Manchester, as well as a whole slew of uh, herbals and early mycological texts. Uh, specifically, one... Uh, Culpepper's Herbal, which we'll talk about some more later, uh, contained a whole section on um, healthy and edible versus poisonous mushrooms. Yeah, I remember reading about him in herbology school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or um, that. So while it may seem a stretch at first glance, this unmentioned natural interp... <laughs> Children go into the bathroom. Wait. Oh. At least she washed her hands. Did she? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so while it may seem a stretch at first glance this unmentioned natural interpretation of mine uh takes on a new meaning when one considers jesse smith's staunch abhorrence uh to christian occultism a stance apparently not shared by the majority of his family she, uh, this, lucy continues the dream with uh quote i turned my eyes upon its fellow meaning the the tree that's bending, which stood opposite, but it was not surrounded with the bright belt of light as the former, and it stood erect and fixed as a pillar of marble. No matter how strong the wind blew over it, not a leaf stirred, not a bow was bent, but obstinately stiff it stood, scorning alike the zephyr's breath or the power of the mighty storm. That these personated my husband and my oldest brother, Jesse Smith, that the other, more pliant and flexible, was like the Joseph, my husband." Um, Did Lucy, she say her older brother? She means her brother-in-law. Okay. Uh, Lucy Mack seems to have come to some sort of realization that her husband's unorthodox religious inclinations and philosophical differences with the clergy would eventually lead him to the light and, you know, God's true religion. Mm. Left alone, this might be worth writing off at face value, but given the next series of recorded visions experienced by Joseph Sr., the mimico botanical value of each dream comes in a set of three, progressively more and more unambiguous. Uh, so Joseph is, so you have triple meanings in each dream mm-hmm. and there's three of them, which kind of, again, doubles down on that triplicate meaning idea. Um, the dreams are all hers? 
well, this one she just described was hers. And the next one I'm about to describe is her retelling her husband's dream. Okay. Um, in Joseph's dreams that she describes, Joseph is usually attended by a spirit guide, which explains his visions to him as he's having them, which again is right in line with traditional cult, uh, experience. Uh, this usually deals with the world's religions or the state of the world spiritually. And it always seems to involve a substance being ingested, which bestows wisdom and understanding to Joseph senior. Mm -hmm. And it's in this one specific vision I'm about to describe that the thing he eats bears a shockingly accurate resemblance to uh, psychoactive detura, which represents in his dream, the tree of life quote, I beheld a beautiful stream of water, which ran from the east to the west. I could see a rope running along the bank of it, about as high as a man could reach, and beyond me was a low but very pleasant valley in which stood a tree, such as I had never seen before. It was exceedingly handsome, insomuch that I looked upon it with wonder and admiration. Its beautiful branches spread themselves somewhat like an umbrella, and it bore a strange kind of fruit in a shape much like a chestnut burr, and as white as snow, or if possible, whiter. I gazed upon the same with considerable interest, and as I was doing so, the burrs or shells commenced opening and shedding their particles, or the fruit which they contained, which was of dazzling whiteness. I drew near and began to eat of it, and I found it delicious beyond description. I presently turned to my guide and inquired of him the meaning of the fruit that was so delicious. He told me that it was the pure love of God shed abroad in the hearts of all those who love him and keep his commandments, unquote. So if you're familiar with Datura, uh, they have a very umbrella-like shape to them, especially the wild ones can get very tall and very widespread. Uh, um, well, I am widespread. familiar with Datura, but it's t completely different where I grew up so but yes i've seen it here get bigger mm -hmm. so yeah in the desert not so much it's no a low, it's a low, low grow yeah it's low but, growing uh, in like the new york area or up here in oregon where it's yes like, i have you know, seen it branch out and become like a tree mm -hmm. um and the uh usually the chestnut burrs the like spiky chestnut burrs yes. that he's talking about when yeah. they when they get ripe enough open they burst they have a white filling that has, and the seeds are often used for psychoactive purposes. Uh, the whole plant is psychoactive, but what he just described could be nothing. But again, if you take it in the triplicate meanings, that sounds to me like anybody who knows Datura would, yeah, absolutely. would hear that. I mean, the only thing he doesn't really explain is the flowers, but mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because that's normally the more appealing. But I think uh, he's also describing them when he's describing the tree in the that white. the trees, they're of exceeding whiteness and okay. they unfurl themselves like an umbrella. Oh, yes. He did say that. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. I was thinking more like covering, like a can mm -hmm. like, instead of, yeah, I guess you're right. Again, this could trumpet, be nothing, but. Umbrella. But if, yeah, I think they're more trumpet-like. But yeah, I guess I was thinking the shape of the entire tree mm -hmm. was more of an umbrella, just like has like a bit of a canopy. But well, and Datura is another one of those, like, uh, in the quote I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, he mentions like henbane, hemlock, black poppy. Right. Datura is another one of those that For sure. was around and people knew about it. Um, and I think it was Robert Beckstead that first put it forward. 
Uh, in his paper, when I first read his paper, I thought the idea that Joseph Smith was using Datura was nonsense. Uh-huh. And I like dove into it, assuming that I would prove him wrong. And the more I dove into it, the more I was like, that's a, that's a totally legitimate method for yeah. doing this. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do so, or I bring it up from the I, perspective of like, I had to change my mind on this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it's just worth mentioning. This uh, possibly taxonomically accurate description of Datura is almost entirely unambiguous given the effects uh, following its ingestion. The remainder of the vision sees Joseph Smith sharing the wondrous fruit with his family and several passerby who in turn gorge on the pure love of God, while in, mean t- in the meantime, a uh, spacious building filled with people who are very finely dressed look down on them and kind of laugh contemptuously at both uh, at all of the truth seekers. And this particular vision was so important that it reappears nearly 20 years later as a central narrative to the opening chapters of the Book of Mormon. So he basically like plagiarized this dream that his dad had and made it part of the, the central thesis of those opening chapters. Um, Did he he turn it more into like the tree of life? Yeah. He definitely toned down the, uh, the magic side of this and it was way more religious in Uh, the Book of Mormon version. But if you know this vision and you've read the first like 10 chapters of the Book of Mormon, uh you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, there's a rope with a, that's like waist high that leads to this tree of life. There's a big spacious building full of devil people that are laughing at them. And, And anyway, it's, it is the exact same dream. Huh. So, he, so okay. while speculative and re- relying on an, an occult interpretation, these visions are again recorded in a traditional occult style and obviously had a profound formative effect on young Joseph Jr. That each vision is centered around a fungal or botanical source of joy and wisdom, which when ingested would bring the bearer to a direct and immediate experience with the love of God is worth consideration by even the most skeptical, in my opinion. This at least has to be talked about. Just prior to this visionary period uh, for the Smith couple, I should mention, because <laughs> it's kind of important to the story, on December 23rd, just before Christmas in 1805, while living in Sharon, Vermont, Lucy recorded the seemingly uneventful birth of her most infamous son. She said, uh, quote, in the meantime, we had a son whom we called Joseph after the name of his father. I shall speak more of him by and by. Um, <laughs> when, when Joseph Jr. was six years old, uh, around the time of this, uh, these visions being recorded, uh, they were recorded in, uh, as being, as occurring in 1811, I think which is when Joseph would have been six years old. Mm-hmm. So at the same so time. several years have gone by mm-hmm. after these visions. Mm-hmm. So they could have also gotten a little skewed. Oh, she didn't record these visions until like the 1840s. So like, okay. again, there's, yeah. there's some wiggle room there. So when Joseph is six, about the same time that these visions are apparently happening, a typhoid em- epidemic struck the area and all of the Smith children were victims of the sickness. Despite several close calls, like where one of the uh, the babies, uh, they thought one of the young girls died, and like Lucy Mack has to like hold her and walk her around the room, she thinking that her kid is dead, and that she starts like crying eventually, and uh, Lucy Mack just kind of collapses with exhaustion Ugh. and like relief. It's really a gr- it's a sad period right now. I'm about to talk about, and I have a hard time as a dad talking so about this it. Is- 
Okay, so this is later a couple years. So she's had a couple more kids. So Yeah, so in, in context of like the financial disaster, this is approximately seven, eight years after they did that. They're okay. finally getting back on their feet. Right. They've had a few more kids. Okay. They just had Joseph a few years ago. He's Which is a Capricorn, by the way, just for all of you. Oh, he's a Capricorn? <laughs> he's a Capricorn. Yeah, I keep coming across that he was born under the sign of Jupiter, but... Yeah, no, that's definitely Saturn. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's just Saturn. Yeah, it's Saturn. Okay. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this t- typhoid epidemic strikes the area. All of the children get hit. Um, despite several close calls, like I mentioned, the, the likely physically exhausted and psychologically drained Smith parents emerged from this ordeal with all seven children alive and relatively well. <laughs> And again, this has to speak to their ability to take take care of the sick and uh, Lucy Max do you craft. What uh, what are the uh, what are the symptoms of all of this? Oh, typhoid! Like, yeah, I have no idea. I'm so it's a curious. wasting sickness. They talked about how light the kids were, like they lost weight. And okay, so they're not holding down. I'm guessing fluids. Uh, it's a high. F- I know there's a high fever and okay. chance of. Um, Chance of infection. Let's see. Typhoid is a bacterial disease spread through contaminated food and water or close contact. Oh, okay. So if someone gets it, they all get it. Symptoms include high fever, headache, belly pain, and either constipation or diarrhea. So yeah, it's a pretty probably some vomiting too. Yeah. Um, okay. They're getting really weak and thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so... All of the children, like I said, come out of this pretty well, except Joseph Jr. As detailed by his biographer, Richard Bushman, quote, The fever left six-year-old Joseph after two weeks, but a sore formed in his armpit and was wrongly diagnosed as a sprain. After two weeks of intense pain, the doctor identified the true cause and lanced the sore, which discharged a quart of purulent matter. A quart. A quart of pus? Pus, yeah. Gross. Yeah. Uh, through that, inf- or though that infection healed, Joseph complained of a pain in his leg, uh, his left shin and ankle. Hiram, his older brother, sat beside him, uh, holding the affected part of his leg in his hands and pressing it between them so that his afflicted brother might be enabled to endure the pain. And after three weeks of this, uh, Dr. Stone was called in, and at this time, an eight-inch incision was made between ankle and knee. Opening the leg helped temporarily, but the infection had now entered the bone. And as the wound healed over, the infection flamed up again. (laughs) The doctor made another larger incision going all the way down to the bone. So he's now had (sighs) two minor surgeries on this leg in in just a few weeks. (sighs) And eventually upwards of nearly a dozen physicians from local colleges, because this was kind of such a rare case. Mm. Uh, came in to check them out and eventually made their way to the Smith home. Uh, unanimously, the doctors suggested amputation because of the level of infection and the natural react. This was just kind of the natural reaction of the time to things. Like oh this. yeah. No, just cut it off. Uh, speaking to Lucy Max, um, character, she forbade the doctors from doing this and, yeah, because that's a hard life. And uh, offered an alternative surgical procedure involving removing the affected bone and muscle tissue. And to her credit, like all of the doctors listened to her and this is what they removing did. Removing the bone? Yeah, they like would chip off, like drill holes in the bone and chip off the infected parts. So they had, I hope, 
to drug the hell out of this kid. This is the pretty insane part. Uh, they offered him mixed wine and liquor. That's it? Which, when I say mixed, I mean it had... Oh, like opium? Probably. Okay. Um, they offered it to him, but... Um, Don't get righteous. Just do it. <laughs> so the, these doctors, led by one Nathaniel Smith, no relation to the rest of them, uh, bore several holes on either side of Joseph's shin bone and broke off the inflicted parts in chunks. Uh, Joseph was said to have refused the brandy or wine and uh, additionally refused being tied to the bed. Instead, he just resigned to simply holding still if his father, Joseph Sr., would just sit with him. What? So at at this age, he just like rambos his way through leg surgery. I mean, I get like – I had – you know, childbirth naturally. I get that. This, no. Well, consider also, like, this was a kind of a, a pious family. And while they all... Why? They're drunk have, all the time. While they may have <laughs> drunk, it seems like Joseph Sr.'s drinking was a bit of a, a, um, a shame on the family oh, at times. Okay. And Joseph, especially at like six or seven, yeah, may have not wanted to... I want to be may like have wanted to like. Sh- well, I think he may have wanted to show his dad. Like, Ooh. this may have been, like, a power play of, like, Dad, you need to be better. Um, look, look what I can do. At least this that's how I've always taken Shit. this. Regardless. It, it, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Um, and he did. By all accounts, he did just that. Uh, he cried out several times. <laughs> uh, and that's Lucy cool. had to walk out in the fields pacing back and forth just to, like uh, – but she and she came in a few times, and the doctors and Joseph uh, had to like shoo her out. Get but out! She, she did see that he was lying on the bed, just soaked in blood and sweating bullets. And he, he, she said he was like pale as a sheet. Yeah. So, Mormon historian uh, Dan Vogel has put forward a pretty compelling case. I think that his refusal of cr- even crude anesthesia was a direct response to his father's already noted periods of intemperance. I think that is a, a pretty good case. However, he interpreted that. I do think as a kid, he was trying to prove a point here. Okay. Um, regardless, again, the, the incredible resolve That's of sweet. such a young kid to endure such a radical surgery oh my gosh. while unmedicated is just shocking. <laughs> okay. And so they chip away his bones um, so, yes. on his body and and apparently rip like off after all the it flesh heals uh, several more chunks of the bone they didn't get out uh, find their way to the surface. So for like cool. weeks he's just pulling bone out of this like healing wound. Um <laughs> so for those of you that aren't squeamish and are still listening <laughs> um Joseph spent the next few years recovering from this ordeal. And he had to walk with the aid of crutches or by being carried by older siblings. Um, actually, Hiram and him and Hiram and Alvin are kind of his designated handlers. And part of the reason why I think they had such a tight bond is because they literally just carried they the had brother to do around. This. Yeah. yeah. That's really so Joseph sweet. carried a pronounced limp for the rest of his life, obviously. Um, but he had his leg. Yeah. Thanks, and Mom. Despite this, uh, he this whole incident, he didn't keep this aversion to ato- intoxicating substances. He did a, he did come around eventually. Um, so while this is cool and badass, <laughs> he, he did eventually take that brandy. Um, we'll cover this in 
much greater length. That interesting. But it's me, uh, it's but... important to note here that uh, before we wrap up real quick, that Joseph Jr., who was physically handicapped at this young age, was unable to physically dig uh, in the money digging groups associated with the Smith family or work the fields like the rest of his family could. Yeah. At a time when all of the kids had to pitch in. Yeah. Um, so despite this, he was consistently reported as being present as an active contributor in these money digging operations, participating as the group's designated innocent or virgin scryer because he was a young kid. Right. So he had a paid position in the money digging groups, right. one that he was almost perfect to fit. Also worth noting is that, you know, a traditional quote unquote shamanic illness or like an illness that unlocks your kind of, uh, Magical abilities is another motif that people would have recognized. They yes. would have looked at him and been like, this is the kid who can see. Right. And they so, probably could just tell the story. Hey, he had his bones chipped away. Yeah. And he didn't. Without uh, anything. This have, was like have a family you done story. that? Yeah. Like, no, no. <laughs> no, no. All right. Um, well, why don't you shut up? He's more man of a man than you are. <laughs> As a, not a preteen. <clears throat> um, Damn. A pos- th- this position of the, the scryer um, or the seer uh, was of the utmost importance within such magic groups. And perhaps this is the reason for young Smith's later obsession with absolving himself of sins. That's something you'll see him write about a lot. And it's because he started his career as the, as the virgin scryer. He had to be uncontaminated. And if he sinned, his, his vision went away. So this is something that was instilled in him as a young child. And that's why he obsessed about it. Bran the broken. He is like Bran the broken. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that. Joe the Broken. They all, all the other ones had to be all brute and <laughs> kill people. And, uh, he had to have his intellect and. Yeah. And well, and he gains his physicality back. Like there's, especially when he's an older teen. Okay. He clearly kind of worked his, worked his way through it because he's working the fields as an adult. Okay. And like he loved to wrestle apparently. So he kind of, he must have gotten picked on a bit because he, he kind of, got a feel for like no i'll show you how tough i am mm-hmm. and by all accounts he was a tough bastard oh yeah um yeah there's there's some accounts we'll get into in future episodes where like he's wrestling people because they're they're like trying to drag him out of some of uh, the a house mm-hmm. and he kicks one of them and the guy like flies across the, the porch and like lands in the dirt and says he's like i hated that guy and wanted to kill him he is the strongest goddamn person that's ever hurt me in my life that's like, amazing it's okay so that's really interesting despite all of this son of a bitch. I'm sorry. well maybe because of this he's a tough son of a bitch um, i don't know or maybe yeah maybe <laughs> might have just been uh we, we should probably stop here okay because we're about to get into we just got to why joseph was in the the money digging stuff and we have a lot more to cover. So we'll end it here. We'll start off with kind of the family in this position, mm-hmm. uh, starting their career as magicians. So lesson learned, moral learned for this section of our story. What is it? Um, don't get a leg infection. <laughs> <laughs> Wheel of morality. Turn, turn, turn. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Uh, we'll see you next week. Please stay tuned for the Money Digging Smiths. <laughs> Can you give us an out sound? Should it be different? No, it's got to be the same. <laughs> there we go. Moth Duo just left us. Mm-hmm.